นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสะสวันนี้เป็นวันที่เพราะเขาเรียนว่าสิ่งที่เราทำ
this mistake that we keep making that creates a problem out of life. And once they saw it and learned how to stop doing it, it was the end of the struggle. So it wasn't that the world changed. The world is always just so. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and cognizing <clears throat> the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches a mental impression, that's life. That's existence. And that was the same for the Buddha before and after his enlightenment, except after his enlightenment there was nothing extra. Now for us, there's, <clears throat> there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching and cognizing and there's all the extra. There's all the other stuff that we do. The liking, the disliking, the picking, the choosing the agreeing, the disagreeing, the taking sides. And the Buddha realized that this taking sides is not an obligation, there's an alternative to that which he called the middle way, between taking sides, the way of awareness, the way of understanding, the way of wisdom, the way of compassion. And so all the teachings that we have is pointing us along this way so that the idea is also that all beings can potentially uh, have this realization, have this experience. And it's not... It's not a blessing that somebody else comes along and zaps you with. Um, the Buddha himself said, I can but point the way. You've got to walk it. And uh, so fortunately he articulated the way and gave endless, made endless effort to give us, show us the right directions and similarly with the great teachers ever since. And so like on this occasion where Ajahn Chah is is talking about the, the radiant mind that has given up evil and abiding in a state of ease. And so having an example of such people, if you've ever had the huge privilege of <clears throat> meeting somebody like that, somebody who lives in a state of ease, it is a, the blessing is in fact seeing that, realizing that, that which gives rise to the faith that this is possible. And the, the discourse, the Buddha's discourse on the great blessings, the Mahamangala Sutta, as the, towards the end, there's this expression, which is, is, the sight of a summoner is the greatest blessing. So what's such a great blessing about seeing a summoner? Probably, you know, not very good looking, scruffy, kind of ugly robes and getting around, unshaven, whatever. So what's so great about seeing a summoner? Well, a summoner is somebody who is stilled, somebody who's truly stilled, somebody who's truly free from compulsive taking sides. Truly liberated. A real summoner, a true summoner, a realized summoner. And so seeing a summoner, what is it that sees a summoner? Now, a lot of people could see a summoner and walk on by and say, oh, what a wally, what's he all about? But if you see a summoner, if you recognize somebody who's truly at peace, and you hear their teachings and you recognize that what they're talking about, that within you, that within us, which sees, is the blessing. So seeing a summoner, uh, like listening to or hearing a summoner, listening to teachings by these great teachers, uh, it, what it does is it quickens something within us. And that is indeed a great blessing. Because up until that point, well, speaking personally, I just couldn't see the point in a lot of things. I mean, I knew how to have fun in life. I, you know, a few things that were were good but, um, and okay for a while, but nothing really lasted. There was nothing really worth investing in. Not really. And yet, coming across Dhamma, coming across Dhamma teachings, and then following meditation instruction and seeing, oh yeah, this works. This is worthwhile. 
that's a turning point. That's a real turning point in life. And if it wasn't for the example of people like Ajahn Chah, if it wasn't for the teachings of the Buddha, then, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's like the world is shrouded in darkness. But enlightened beings bring light into the world. And so having such an example, these teachers, they tell us, this is possible. This is possible. We don't have to just... We don't have to just put up with conventional, common and garden variety happiness that comes from gratification. That's what most of us are doing most of the time and certainly speaking personally, that's what I was doing all the time before I came across meditation practice and the spiritual life. What can I do next? It's fun. Where can I... I want this and then you gratify the desire and gratification of desire equals freedom from irritation of desire equals happiness and so you just hone down your skills at at making better music or doing something more beautiful or having more fun whatever but all of it all of it no matter how refined all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions are they all pass and so that common and garden variety everyday happiness is just gratification of desire it's just momentary relief from the irritation of wanting and if that's the only kind of happiness that we know well that's that's really mundane that's really mediocre and really from the perspective of realized beings really unfortunate for them they their experience was there is this thing uh, this unshakable heart, jittang nakampati, the Buddha called it, the unshakable heart, the unshakable state of ease. Unshakable ease is possible from their perspective. And so demonstrating that, talking about that, living that is a great blessing for us. And, and then for out of that, faith and energy arises. Oh, yeah, this effort is worthwhile. This is worth doing. Until then, even the spiritual exercises that we get up to, a lot of them are just based on desire. I can, you know, do this technique and then I'll have another pleasant experience and maybe we succeed for a while. And, but then after a while, we have an unpleasant experience and it doesn't cure us, it doesn't take us, it doesn't free us from the apparently endless, oscillating between ease and dis-ease, ease and dis-ease. Well, the example of the Buddha and the great teachers is that this is not necessary. There is an alternative. Unshakable ease is possible and encourages to trust in that, to trust in this possibility. Ajahn Chah's own example for talking about this when he was speaking to the monks and encouraging us and the kind of effort to make, was he said, it's like you want to see the mind as like like water, that it doesn't matter how much stuff you put in it, you know, you put red dye in it, you put green dye in it, you put dirt in it, whatever, the actual nature of the water doesn't change. The nature of the human heart is already inherently at ease. That's its nature. It is pure, inherently pure. But there's all this other stuff added. And we get confused about that. We believe in all the stuff that's added, the liking, the disliking, the wanting, the not wanting, the agreeing, the disagreeing, the picking and the choosing. 
Now, without the example of the great teachers, without the, uh, their teaching, we could fall for just assuming this is all there is. You know, we make our minds temporarily peaceful. You know, sing some songs, do some bhajans, concentrate on a mantra so that we have another nice experience. Well, that's not what Ajahn Chah is encouraging us towards. It's not what the Buddha was encouraging, but rather a completely different approach to happiness. Not seeing that the happiness we're seeking is something that we can get or even something we're lacking, but that the task is how to let go of that which is extra. What do we always add to experience? Can we, can there be seeing without liking and disliking? Can there be hearing without adding anything extra? Can there be tasting without picking and choosing? Mm-hmm. So we have a training to do. But the first thing, and what's really important, and I, I'm sure this has been the experience for all of us, is the faith that it's possible. And so the faith in unshakable ease, conscious faith. Now the word faith is for some people difficult because they've experienced blind faith and uh, faith not associated with awareness and so a lot of people won't even use the word faith and sometimes they hear Buddhists talking about trying to translate the Buddhist word for faith which is sadha and they try to translate it as confidence and well if that works that's fine but uh, personally I find I met a lot of confident egos around that confidence doesn't really have the same um, doesn't it's not the same tune as faith faith implies surrender and that's what we're talking about is that what is it that gets quickened within us which means that we're willing to surrender my way all that manipulating that we've been doing for so long to try and make ourselves happy and it hasn't worked what is that force that momentum that radiance that inspires us to let go of that and try something new, something really new, something really radically new. That's faith. That's energy. That's sadhana. Trust. We could also call it trust. So that conscious trust, we know we've tried it, we've tested it, we've inspected it. We're not just blindly believing because we read some inspiring book. We're aware, we're choosing to engage in, in... this energy because we're interested we really see that there's we feel there's something in this and so conscious trust is important I I see the spiritual journey if you like um, I see it as like a a long drawn out detox it's like we've been we've been mainlining samsara for how long you know we've been shooting up on samsara and believing that the next hit is going to make us happy and we're addicted. We're all addicts. And you know, eventually, if you get the message that this is going to kill you, and then you hear there's an alternative, you think, well, yeah, okay, I'm going to go through the detox. And, but engaging the detox program takes faith. <laughs> and if you've known anybody who's gone through some chemical detox, you'll know, you know there's got to be a very strong element of trust. And so the spiritual journey... Ego's manipulations only knows how can I set it up to make myself more secure. That's all it knows. 
Even if some subtle, devious, sophisticated manipulation, it's still aiming at the same thing. How can I make myself more secure? Whereas what the Buddha is asking us to do, if we want to realize unshakable self-existent ease, is to do something radically different. Is to disengage from that whole compulsive manipulating process. And it takes trust, it takes faith. But it's a conscious faith. Also he encourages in what is really important if we're going to be following this detox program is conscious relationship. Now, we might hear about unshakable ease and and realize how much more attractive that is than some sort of synthetic serenity that we've conjured up by doing some spiritual tricks and so get inspired on the spiritual journey. But it is... um, because we're so so greedy, you know, we can make a mistake and grasp at some of the initial experiences we have on the spiritual journey and think, well, I just want more of that. So in other words, I'm talking about people going on meditation retreat, like myself. I went to my first meditation retreat and had this experience that for me was, was really life-changing, was a wonderful experience, and then I went back to where I was living and I just wanted to meditate all day long didn't really want to talk to anybody and if I was going to talk to them I was just going to preach to them about how they should be meditating and I did preach to them about how they should be meditating and I put them all off meditation as a result it didn't work I was so sure that I was right I wasn't into conscious relationship I certainly wasn't into empathy I was into me and my way of meditating and uh, that's not something that uh, the Buddha encouraged. It's certainly not something that the great teachers like Ajahn Chah exemplified. Uh, Ajahn Chah knew how to meet people. Uh, Ajahn Tate, another teacher I lived with in Thailand, knew how to meet people. Relationship is not an enemy of the spiritual life. You know, sometimes people make it into an enemy because we, most of us, at least in our Western society, you know, have grown up with all sorts of wounds from early life relationships that we never managed to let go of, and we're carrying these burdens of failed, disappointed, hurting relationships. And, and so then we find an alternative is forgetting about people, closing our eyes, watching the breath, going inside and saying, goodbye, cruel world, I'm out of here. I'm just going to concentrate and drop into bliss as much as I possibly can. Which, if you can do it, might be all right for a wee while, but then you've got to go to the shop or you've got to, you're going to have to see people. And sadly, if we've taken a position against relationships, we make an unnecessary problem out of it. Yeah. Actually, the Buddha held up spiritual companionship as essential. And probably most of you will be aware of that... Uh, reported conversation between the Buddha and his attendant, the Venerable Ananda, where the Venerable Ananda thought that he was you know, doing this good thing, promoting the Buddha and, and how wonderful the Buddha's teaching was. And when somebody had asked him about the place of spiritual companionship in the holy life, the Venerable Ananda said, well, it's 50%. And so you know, he gave it a good rating. You know, it's not just running off and sitting under a tree and forgetting about everybody, but spiritual companionship, it's worth cultivating. And so the Venerable Ananda was reporting this to the Lord Buddha and the Buddha said, no, you got it wrong, Ananda. Spiritual companionship is the whole thing. Now, I don't claim to know what the Buddha really meant when he said it's the whole thing, 
But one aspect of it that's worth considering is that this addiction that we suffer from to controlling, to manipulating life, to get what we want in pursuit of happiness, this egoic pursuit that we're addicted to is an expression of all of our early life relationships. So we recognize, presumably, that the tangle of egoity or identification with the conventional personality, we appreciate that identification with this contracted state is limited and limiting. How do we get out of it? Well, if it's unconscious relationships that have got us into this state, then surely it's conscious relationships that can help us get out of it. Again, this is something the Buddha spoke of most explicitly and talking about not giving priority to relationships that are going to pull you down, but give priority, emphasize, cultivate relationships that are going to lift you up. In other words, this addiction to, to uh, deluded existence makes us have crazy ideas. You know, we have all sorts of crazy ideas about life, like indulgence is a good idea, like restraint and renunciation is for losers. You know, th- these are actually crazy ideas. That indulgence always leads to loss of energy and increased feeling of limitation. Yeah. Indulgence is not the way. And yet, over and over again, we keep getting pulled into it. Indulgence and heedless speech, heedless action, heedless thoughts, that leads to regret. So how do we break the habit? of our crazy ideas, well, living with people a little less crazy than us is a really good idea. So associating with people a little less crazy than us lifts us up. And so cultivating wholesome friendship, cultivating spiritual companionship, conscious relationship is an essential aspect of this, um, this detox program that we call the spiritual path. I remember some years ago visiting a spiritual community where there were some difficulties, you know, like spiritual communities often have student-teacher relationships. It was a meditation community, and, um, and some of the people in this community had found out that um, instead of just sitting meditation all day long, it was proving helpful to meet each other and talk and listen and this was a this was a quite a radical idea because the idea at the center was you're supposed to meditate as much as possible but some of the people found out that this wasn't dealing with uh, all of the issues of life and so they started getting together and experimenting with talking and listening to each other and and the teacher at the time there was was really threatened by this and and i, I remember these these uh, talks of encouragement said, the real practice is meditation. Stop worrying about relationships. And, well, the fact is, it wasn't long after that that there was a big um, blow-up in the community and, uh, and a lot of people left. There was a lot of pain. That making the mistake of assuming that because getting quiet and still and accessing some synthetic serenity some temporary tranquility, some momentary ease, making the mistake of thinking that we just need more of that and that everything else is 
not practice, that's really unfortunate. Yeah. And that's what uh, one of the advantages of having a, a teacher around. A teacher recognizes where you're going off and just greedily cultivating the things that you're already good at or the things you already like. And a lot of our spiritual practice is, in fact, encouraging ourselves or finding out where are we weak. For many of us, it's in this area of relationships. In the forest monasteries in Thailand, it's interesting to observe that how people like Ajahn Chah, when he built his monastery, would build all the meditation huts so nobody could see anybody. From one hut to another, you couldn't see anybody. It'd just be trees. And the Thai monks, they just hated it. Those of you who have been to Thailand, they just love hanging out with each other. They're always walking around holding hands and talking and sharing food. And they're probably some of the most social people on the planet. And get them to go and live in a meditation hut on their own. They, they really freak out. They can't stand it. And then they saw us, these Westerners, coming and we're just running off the huts to be on our own and we just love it. And they thought we were so good. Oh, the Westerners, they're really good meditators because they just love being on their own. Actually, we're just neurotic. We can't even be together. It's a completely different story. We couldn't stand each other. So finding out where we're weak in our practice is necessary. And certainly one of the areas that a lot of us are weak is how to bring our mindfulness that maybe we can cultivate while we're on our own in our own room and stillness and there's nothing irritating us. Can we bring it into an irritating circumstance like relationship where somebody is mouthing off their opinion about something and we totally disagree with them? Are we present enough? Can we be easeful enough? Can we be expanded enough? Can we be present here and now enough to feel our impulse to whack this person down with our own smart aleck opinion and not move on? Can we do that? That's work. That's really hard work. It's much easier for most people not to have to deal with people. But conscious relationship is a really important aspect of the path. And also in support of that, talking about you know whacking people, <laughs> is, is uh, conscious integrity. That we have, we're not just keeping the rules because somebody told us to. That's simplistic. That's easy to do. We all went through that growing up. You know, it's appropriate. Mum and dad set the boundaries for us. We don't know, you know, how much sugar we should eat or. You know, whether we should stick our hand in the fire or whether we should stick our fingers in the electric socket. We don't know all these things and and our rational faculties are not that well developed. So mummy and daddy just say no, no, no. And that's right. That's what mummy and daddy got to do in the beginning until we find that we have our own ability to say no. And then we need to make that process conscious. We're not just saying no out of keeping rules. We're saying no because we understand that boundaries are important. And and in the spiritual journey where we come across, uh, when we start to build up energy, potentizing awareness, and we think that it's all in pursuit of peace and love and light, but the next thing you know, you've also potentized your anger. And uh, you, you inwardly fly into this screaming rage, you know, just because... The person on the cushion next to you is breathing heavy, for goodness sake. 
I mean, here there's sometimes on meditation retreats, somebody comes to see and says, I can't stand that person. I just not, can't put up with it anymore. And what have they done? Said, They're breathing heavily. <laughs> well, when we get a little sensitive and you know, a little vulnerable and you know, our compulsive reactivity gets shown up. And it's really helpful Really, really helpful if we have a very clear sense of boundaries that we're not going to harm anybody. We're not going to harm the planet. We're not going to cause harm. I don't believe in causing harm. I trust that. But there's all these other forces that sometimes seem more important. You know, like I want to just knock that person down with a smart argument or or maybe you want to just pick up that person's nice pen and take it away and have it for myself or... Oh, I want to just tell that little lie that's going to get me out of something rather there. In other words, there's heedless impulses to compromise integrity, which sometimes can have a lot of force behind them. And so we're wise to protect ourselves with very clear boundaries, conscious boundaries. Just as we're cultivating conscious faith and, and conscious relationship, also conscious integrity. And this is what uh, developing the precepts are about. Again, to quote the Buddha's attendant, Ananda. Vinalananda asked the Buddha, said, what's the point of morality? What's the point of sila? What's the point of training and precepts? And the Buddha answered very quickly. He said, freedom from remorse. And any of you that have uh, done any meditation to any extent have probably come across feelings of remorse and how really hurtful they are, how really painful they are. That regret comes up there. And in my own case, I can. There was a period where I felt huge remorse for the way I treated my parents. You know, I was such a, <laughs> such a, such a brat. I, you know, thought I knew better. I mean, of course, adolescents get up to these things, but that doesn't mean to say that it's okay, and there's not consequences. And and I won't embarrass you with details of some of the things that I actually did and said to my parents. But when we experience remorse. The thing to do is to is to not just try and get over it because it's so painful. That's again, that's the lazy attitude. When we experience remorse, the thing is, how quickly can we put our hands together and say, "Welcome, please teach me what I need to learn," because this is the message, this is the teaching. You know, like Buddhist teachings, four noble truths. The first one, you know, number one. Mindfulness, recognition of suffering. The second one is the cause of suffering. The third one is release and all the rest of it. But the first one, when suffering arises, can we be there for it? Can we see it? Can we see it? Can we get interested in it? And remorse is one of those really important Dhamma teachings. When it arises, how long does it take us before we put our hands together and say, Welcome, my teacher. Please point out what it is that I need to learn. Because we know... We've done something that's what it's about. And remorse, remorse, despite what our controlling, indulging, deluded egos might think, remorse is actually healing. If we've got, if we've got awareness, if we've got conscious integrity, if we've got mindfulness around keeping our precepts, that when remorse arises, we don't have to be afraid of it. And hopefully we don't... Activate the guilt disease. You know, if you if you've been kind of infected with a terrible dose of guilt, then 
you can default to thinking that it's virtuous to hate yourself because you've done something wrong. That's a, that's really unfortunate. And for a lot of us, it's the you know before we can come back and get the message that re, that remorse is healing, some of us have got to go back and do some some serious work on untangling this this really complex guilt thing. You know, programmed very early on in life that the way to be good is to hate yourself because you were bad. Now that is really nuts. That's really crazy. But if it's in there, we've got to deal with it. But the good news is when we do deal with it and we can see beyond it as just a piece of conditioning, you know, we feel beyond it in our body and then come back and then when remorse arises, you don't have to go into judgment. Judgment, that's very initial. We know what's right and wrong. That's, you know, it's how can I receive this in the whole body-mind, remorse, feel remorse fully until we get the message. And next time the impulse to compromise integrity, to cross that boundary rises, it's there in the body. The knowledge is there. No way. I'm not going to do that. No way. Because we know. We've learnt. If we haven't really learnt, unfortunately, we'll probably you know, do the same thing over and over again, and so we don't do it. So that's why integrity, it's conscious integrity and conscious keeping precepts. Also, if we're going to take this journey seriously, we need, to, we need a spirit of daring. And um, I often reflect on um, how Ajahn Chah, and I've probably spoken about this before as well, but when somebody was asking him, you know, how come you're different? You know, like there's thousands of monks in Thailand, tens of thousands of monks in Thailand, and how come you're different? And he just replied, he wasn't, you know, wasn't boasting, but he just, I was daring. I was daring. Daring, dare, is what's needed if we really want to succeed in this detox program. If we want to come off the drug of samsara, believing that the only happiness is gratification of desire. If we really want to come off this, this drug, we do have to have fierce faith and trust and confidence. Yes, conscious relationship is very important. Yes, integrity, boundaries, precepts is important, but also we need to be very daring. And daring, one of the reasons we need to be daring is because what we're looking for is something new. You know, we're not just talking about rearranging the furniture here. We're not just talking about a different set of desires that we can then gratify and then have momentary happiness. What we're talking about is transcending this whole miserable ordeal. You know, something that the world doesn't generally know about. All the world, most of the world, most of what goes on, or what at least in Buddhism we call the world, is believing that wanting and not wanting is all there is to it. Whereas the realisation that Ajahn Ajahn Chah was talking about, of this unshakable ease that's there the whole time, is the consequence of a realisation that you can rise above all desire. There's nothing wrong with desire, nothing wrong with any desire. We can talk morality about what's wrong or right, but desire in itself is just like a movement in consciousness. Desire is like fire. Desire is energy. Is energy wrong? Well, right, you can't say energy is wrong or right. Energy is just energy. Desire is just desire. What makes a difference is whether there's the wisdom to realize that this desire, this movement, is not who and what we are. 
And for most of us, most of the time, we're finding our identity, our meanness in movement. Wanting, not wanting. Liking, not liking. This is me. And it shows evidence when I can't say no to that piece of chocolate. I know it's going to give me a headache, but I really love chocolate. And so, oh, oh. <laughs> what did you do that for? Why? Why do we do these things? Why do we keep sticking our hand in the fire? Because it's me. It feels like me. So to discover something other than that is discovering something really new, something really different. And that's important that we have that understanding in the spiritual journey. We're not just talking about, as I said, rearranging the furniture. We're talking about cultivating a whole different quality of awareness. The awareness that we've been living in isn't adequate. The world that we live in isn't enough. If it was, we'd be happy, we'd be contented. But it's not. We're discontented and unhappy a lot of the time. And we argue, and we get greedy, and we get upset, we get anxious, we get miserable, we get worried and afraid. We don't have a vast field of awareness like the Buddha had. The Buddha lived in this vast field of awareness which whatever arose and ceased was not a problem. There was so much space, there was no edges to the space of the Buddha's awareness. Apamano buddho, apamano dhamho, apamano sankho. The Buddha's the Buddha is edgeless, the Dhamma is edgeless, the Sangha is edgeless. There's no limitation to the Buddha's consciousness. The Buddha's awareness was not constricted by clinging. No greed, no aversion, no delusion. And so whatever arose could cease. No clinging, nobody there. Now that doesn't mean to say that an enlightened being doesn't feel anything. Again, to quote Ajahn Tate, the other teacher I lived with in Thailand, when he was commenting on on the uh, the way they the Thais talk about an arahant an enlightened being, and the, the the Pali that they chanted, they translate the arahant as somebody far from defilements. And Ajahn Tate would point out, oh, the arahant's not far from defilements at all. The enlightened being is really close to defilements. Just he sees what is, doesn't touch them. Yeah. The enlightened being, the liberated being, realizes the movement of consciousness that we call desire, doesn't move on it. The liberated being abides as the space in which desire is arising and ceasing. And so for the liberated being, there's no problem. For us, there's endless problems. Understanding this is what inspires us, at least having a, a basic sense of what we're talking about, inspires us, encourages us to do what we need to do to discover something new. And that's what we're doing in, the, in our practices. And so, like at the uh, end of this talk this evening, we're going to chant the, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness and and in there, many of you will know where the Buddha is talking about developing this totally different quality of consciousness, consciously, intentionally, intentionally conceiving, using our imagination. And so the Buddhist is like imagining upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. Now this is engaging in the quality of awareness that we have, intending it, to go beyond this feeling of contracted limitation that we always live in. Yeah. And so the, the, um, the, the kind of meditation we do, the way we approach our meditation, actually defines the feeling of the space that we live in. And so this evening in talking about um, moving towards what Ajahn Chah talked about as this, this state of unshakable ease, trusting in self-existent ease, 
we do these practices, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the one well, the one that I haven't talked about is um, you might have noticed is concentration, and that's because that's what we love doing. That's what we think we're supposed to be doing. We think we're supposed to be concentrating. It's what mummy and daddy told us when we were very young. You know, pay attention, concentrate, and and then they stick a book in front of us, and we're supposed to look at it, and we're supposed to collapse our awareness down to these silly little black squiggles on a page, for goodness sake. You know, and then the next, as you get older, you get gadgets that you're supposed to look at, and and uh, I think um, I think it'd be very interesting to do some study on on uh, the last few hundred years, what's actually happened to human consciousness. In fact, there are people doing this research on what happens to consciousness when we send our attention out through our eyes all the time. People, most of us, are locked in staring mode. So we're always staring at something. You walk around the street, you look at people who are kind of walking around like zombies with their eyes locked in staring mode. I can remember when I was... I was travelling, this is many years ago now, and I'd done my first meditation retreat and I was taught meditation by concentrating on the breath and, and like most people I was very willful and determined so I concentrate, concentrate, concentrate and, and then boom, something wonderful happened and, and I thought, well that's what I've got to do now, more concentration. And so I spent all the time concentrating, concentrating on touching, concentrating on eating, concentrating on looking, concentrating on hearing and, and I was just collapsing, collapsing, collapsing my world. And I went travelling and I thought, I've got to get to a monastery because that must be the place where you do the real practice. And, and in the process of travelling, I remember I was in Penang at the time and on a beach in Penang and, and I was writing in my diary there the state of misery that I was in. I said, I feel like I'm locked in staring mode because I'd done this concentration meditation. I thought, well, that was what you're supposed to do. That was all of life was was just this contracting. Well, it's good that we can use our, our localised, focused attention from time to time. It's, it's helpful when we can do that. But there's much more that we can do as well. And so I, would, I don't encourage people to use concentration meditation more than the bare minimum, but rather to experiment with... with Expanding awareness, conscious like in the, in the Karani Metta Sutta, you know, upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. And just to repeat that, just to repeat that, instead of doing concentration meditation, expanding awareness meditation. And then what I like to exercise when I've been meditating and finish the meditation, you, you open your eyes to make the suggestion, instead of collapsing to some focused attention, you know, to see with all of your eye. You know, I like to suggest, uh, see with all of your eyes. Because yeah. there is a peripheral way of seeing. You can see with the periphery vision of the eye. It's not so focused, it's not so intense. But that doesn't mean to say that we're not seeing. So seeing with all of our eye, feeling with all of our body, expanding awareness. You know. So some of these hints this evening on this adventure, or as I refer to it, this process of detoxing. Um, It's mysterious, and I think it's primary that we appreciate 
that what's called for is not just a rearrangement of things, we're not just shifting things around with new ideas, but that we're interested in discovering something that we don't know, something we've never known, something new and different. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.